We made it. The election is tomorrow. Or maybe it's already happened by the time you listen to this. It feels a little weird. I mean, when we launched this season of The Reckon Interview three months ago, it honestly felt like Election Day may never get here. But here we are, 13 episodes later. And RL, what's been your biggest takeaway from everything we've learned so far this season? I think my biggest takeaway is even though a lot of people, including uh, a lot of folks in the South, tend to dismiss Southern politics because we always know how elections are going to go here. And we tell ourselves that politics here don't really matter. But if you listen to the show this season, you really start to understand that the South really plays an outsized role in shaping just about every American institution you can think of, you know, and that that wouldn't have happened without ordinary folks in communities like Greenwood, Mississippi, Greensboro, North Carolina, who were pounding the pavement, demanding change. And, you know, it really makes you realize how special the South is and, and it really makes you proud to live here. Yeah, I feel very similar. You know, I feel proud hearing all these stories about the impact that Southerners, everyday Southerners, have have had shaping the world. Uh, and I also feel a little frustrated. We looked at, back at about 150 years worth of history here in the South, and I've just been struck by how many times we've fought the same fights, you know, decade after decade, year after year. I mean, just last week, the Supreme Court was was threatening voting rights and this time it was in, in the North, but, you know, it certainly trickles down into the South. And a lot of that has roots in, you know, when we talked about the first episode of this season, uh, that a huge part of politics is deciding who has access to the ballot and who doesn't. But I've been encouraged hearing these stories of people building coalitions, you know, looking back even at the 50s and 60s and 70s, a time when America was obviously even more racially divided than it is now. But hearing stories of you know, white women in Appalachia who find common cause with black people in Mississippi and Alabama and the civil rights movement. And just seeing how, you know, not just the conservative movements that we associate with the South have Southern roots, but also a lot of the progressive movements that have in some ways maybe changed the world more than they've even changed our home states. But it's been inspiring. And I think, you know, looking forward to next year and next season, it seems like we've maybe hit a turning point where a lot of these issues are, are finally going to get some action on the ground level. Hear, hear. So this week on The Interview, we wanted to hear from you. No matter who wins or loses, it'll be people like you who shape the South for the next few years and beyond. We asked a handful of people three basic questions. What's one thing you hope happens next year? What's something you hope never happens again? And what do you think the South will look like four years from now? As our guests introduce themselves and share their ideas, we hope that you all are also thinking about your own answers to those questions, as well as the steps you'll take to act on them. When you've got ideas, tweet at us at at RLNave and at John Hammontree. The election may be over, but the work doesn't end. So let's look to the future on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. I'm Whitney Miller-Nichols. I work in the education sector in Montgomery, Alabama. Whitney, what is one thing that you hope happens next year? I am so sick and tired of seeing people fight on Facebook. <laughs> so I would love over the next 12 months or maybe forever for people to just, you know, get back to the way, I hate to say the way things work because we've had so much happen in the last few months where so many people are seeing things weren't as great as they thought they were. So I don't mean that I want to, you know, go back to the mythical past, 
But for us to just go back to being neighbors, I think that, you know, social media has the potential to bring people together. I actually use it to connect with a lot of networks across the country. Some are international, but it can also be so incredibly divisive. So yeah, short answer. I'm tired of seeing people fight on Facebook. I want that to stop. That might actually answer the second question a little better. What's something that you hope never happens again? Oh man, I'm probably going to get roasted for this. I hate the phrase fake news. I hate even, and I use it ironically now, but I hate feeling like I can't trust sources of information that I've trusted for years, decades. I have forever hated news magazine programs like Nancy Grace. <laughs> and so I, I, when I talk about news media, I don't mean programs like that. And I do wish that people understood the difference between news magazines and news. And I think that, you know, the 24-hour news cycle has sort of destroyed that for us. I just want to be able to read something from, you know, a vetted source and not have to put on a filter and say, okay, what are the root motivations? What side is this publication on? I just want to be able to read again because it's exhausting. It's so exhausting. And I do read widely, but you know, it's, I think it's really destructive for our society to always have to have that critical lens on. And I mean, as a former English teacher, I don't mean we shouldn't read critically, but to have to question the motivation of every single piece of news we get, it's exhausting. What do you think would have to happen in order to reach that point for you? I don't know, because I do think about this a lot. And I guess that makes me a nerd. Maybe that's the English teacher in me. It would help to have elected officials at all levels not use the news as their scapegoat. Um, I think that at all levels on both sides of the aisle, we have a lot of folks who don't know how to take responsibility and who also don't know how to admit to growth. And I think that's what we want out of people. I know that when I was teaching, I always wanted my students to have growth. I am not the same person I was two years ago, shoot, nine months ago, right? I wash my hands way more now than I ever have in my adult life. And I was doing it a lot before. I think back to the John Kerry presidential campaign and how he was just crucified for, quote, flip-flopping, right? I remember flip-flops were everywhere. That always struck me as unfortunate because we do want our elected officials to change their positions if they realize that what they thought about something was incorrect or misguided. Surely someone who's been in office since, you know, the 70s or 80s feels differently about race relations than they did 30 years ago. So I don't know. I guess as a society, we have to be open to growth. I think that would be the the big change. What do you think the South will look like four years from now? Oh, man. So I've been thinking about that for, you know, a while. I don't know. What I would like to see is that we listen to each other. I think that what we're seeing over the last few months, and I'm going to focus here on race relations, is that so many people didn't realize how bad things were because they literally couldn't see it. But then when you've had the deaths that have happened on camera in the last few months, people couldn't close their eyes anymore. So I would like to see us 
talking to each other to to listening. I personally have had a, a reckoning in that I have a friend who is on the other side of the aisle from me politically. And I have found that she's actually done a lot more active, constructive work with social justice initiatives. And so I, it's really helped me open my eyes to see that no political party owns social justice. We shouldn't. It's a human rights issue. So I would like to see us in our own ways, working toward listening to people and seeing people for the betterment of everybody. Hi, I'm Courtney Campbell. I am a social worker with the state of Georgia. I was an Alabama resident for how many years? 20 odd years. And I've been living here in Georgia for about two years. So mostly a Southerner, except for one year of my life. <laughs> that one year in, in Chicago. In Chicago. It was too yeah. cold. <laughs> I spent a year in Chicago. It, it was too, too cold. cold. It was negative 30 on New Year's. That's when my Southern self was like, no. Well, let's talk about next year. What's one thing that you hope happens next year? See, I was thinking about this question because like, there's a lot of things I hope happen. And I guess because of the climate, I thought more of the pandemic. I hope that we get a reasonably done vaccine and get that. Of course, that's probably not going to be till like the third quarter of next year. I just hope that in terms of, you know, people taking it seriously, not just that, but state governments, federal, I hope we get more of that. That was the one thing I couldn't not think about was hoping things, you know, start to improve with the pandemic. It really just depends what happens. What's something that you hope never happens again? I, there will be a pandemic again (laughs) one day. (laughs) Again, I hate to keep going back to the pandemic, but it's just, you know, the thing right now. I hope that we never have a situation again where, you know, our CDC is kind of crippled (laughs) and people, it's not, it's not just people not taking it seriously. It's people forced to not take it seriously. People being forced to work. I hope that we collectively are in a place where people can be provided for where they can kind of socially distance as they need and not kind of forced to act like it didn't happen. I actually went and when this pandemic started, studied like the 1918 flu and and there's a lot of parallels there despite it being a whole different century. So I'm not as hopeful (laughs) about that, but, but maybe so, I don't know. I I just, and I also hope that we never get a fascist again, who knows, but because I looked at the same time period and that happened too. So just like, Oh (laughs) yeah. It's funny how things come back around, but maybe, maybe we can look on a clock. It's like, is it a century thing? Oh goodness. And then the 1920s are starting off in a very similar way too. So 2120 will be a, a rough time for people sometime. In, in uh, it depends on when climate change will see. <laughs> That'll <laughs> be true. the one difference. Everything's bad. <laughs> well, let's look at a slightly closer timeline. What do you think that the South looks like four years from now? Or what do you hope it looks like? I'm hoping, because I'm very watchful of what's going on here in Georgia as well. I'm actually thinking people are, in my opinion, I don't know if it's people this is totally anecdotal. I haven't really looked into a lot of stuff, so I don't want people yelling at me and maybe wrong. This a lot of people I've noticed are moved. Actually, it's kind of like an opposite. People are moving back to the South. A lot of what I've noticed, at least here in Atlanta, <laughs> there's a lot of people moving here and not just like from other parts of the South, like from the North. Like I know a lot of Chicago ones that ended up moving here. I think 
that's quite interesting to look at. And I think it's pushing the South a little bit more blue. I'm noticing here in Georgia. I think Georgia absolutely has a chance of flipping. We saw it very closely with Stacey Abrams. I think John Ossoff might, might win. We might. So I think we might see that more and more. And, and if you look at Mississippi, Mississippi has a chance to, South Carolina, lots of states. Um, that's one thing I've always been a proponent of is people not really giving up on the South. I, I really hate that. I really <laughs> hate that because what it, it's, I'm not going to get into it because I'm going to make this an hour long. But I think we're going to see more and more shift towards progressivism. One, because of the move. And I think because of growing cities and the, the way the demographics are changing. If there's somebody out there who you know might be listening to the show who grew up in the South but is currently living somewhere else, what would be your pitch to them to come back? Well, one, as someone that moved away for a year to Chicago, if you're somewhere where it's cold, do you not miss it? It's it's snowing in Chicago today. That's gross. You should, no one should ever. And one other thing too, it's it's growing. Like I kind of understood, especially after 2016, I was like, let me just get out for a year just to see. And it was nice. But I think one thing I learned especially is that, and this is one thing I preach to a lot of people, is that other states are not that different from the South. A lot of people need to understand that. It's just, especially with like racism and a lot of bigotry, it's just some places it might appear to be more veiled, but nowhere is really all that different. I think the South is growing a lot more opportunity, especially if we get more people voting too. We can get more representatives that listen to us and help bring businesses in. I know Birmingham even now has been growing and growing and growing and growing. Atlanta has always been growing. It's too full. But even my part where I live, I live in Marietta, it's exploding. It is exploding. When we moved here, it was just us and one other apartment complex. And we live right by university. And now it's like six of them and it's really crowded. <laughs> so it's, it's really blowing up. So I think, and it's cheaper here too, because lower cost of living. So it's cheaper. I can guarantee you that from when I lived in Chicago. But yeah, I think people need to, need to give it a chance because I see a lot of people like, oh, I would never live in the South, this and that. And it's just like, no, there's a lot to offer. The food will always be better. I will fight people on this. The food will always be better. It's, it's the best food in the whole country. Fight me. I don't care. There's something about the culture that I really love. There's this overt friendliness <laughs> that I love. Like, not that people aren't friendly, but it's just, it's just more so here. And I just think there's just this camaraderie here with a lot of people. You don't really get anywhere else. So I, I just, I like it. I like it a lot. So. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from more of you. And they went up and shot her. The police shooting of a young woman in 1979 changed her city. Some say changed the world. It led to riots, protests, outrage, and the usual responses from those who had ruled the South for so long. I remember there were cars with white men driving through the neighborhood, shooting the neighborhood. Now, now, I can't say they were playing, but my guess is, you know, they were, they didn't look like me. It changed the balance of power in Birmingham, Alabama, a city once known as Birmingham. It upended a police department built by that infamous Bull Connor. It ignited a movement four decades before Black Lives Matter. That's what struck me days later, weeks later, years later, that I would really come to grasp the significance of what she had done, of her death. What was it about this woman? Birmingham's history, maybe. Maybe hundreds of police shootings that came before her. And I remember asking myself, Are you, am I going to be able to shoot somebody that's 
just running unarmed, and I don't know what I would have done. Hundreds of killings of black people over generations ruled justifiable. And it just spurred a question in me is, is how often does that happen? And I thought it would be as simple as that to, to find out. What does Benita Carter still have to teach us? And what really happened on that fateful Friday night? And so I just said, you know, incidentally, who was the officer who did the shooting? And Maya said, Joy Sands. I said, oh my God. Hello, is this Mr. George Sands? Yes, Colin. Unjustifiable, a new six-part series from Reckon. Coming soon to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or any of your favorite platforms. Benita Patrice Carter. Say her name. My name is Devin Frazier. I am the founder and CEO of IC Me Inc., which is a literacy nonprofit that focuses on children of color. Devin, what's one thing you hope happens next year? Next year, I will I hope to see a lot of these gaps closed in regards to education. I think that COVID has unveiled a lot of inequalities both racially and when we look at our social economic realm as well, I would love to see a change in regards to those areas. What do you think would need to happen in order to close the gap, you know, here in Alabama and in Jefferson County, for example? In Alabama I, or Jefferson County, I've been an educator many years and I have worked in both small systems and larger school systems. And when you look at an area like a Fairfield, the tax revenue that's generated for an area like that is is little to none, and it affects the children in that area. I think that focus needs to be placed on trying to educate all of our children equally, finding the funds to do so, finding the resources and so forth to do so, to see children not be educated properly during COVID because of the fact that they didn't have Wi-Fi or didn't have uh, proper devices was just heartbreaking. Um, Many of those children are very, very intelligent, but to know that they will fall behind because of those things, we, we have to find a way in order to close that gap. What's something that you hope never happens again? I hope that we never see a global pandemic on the level of COVID-19 again. My family was touched personally. We lost my uncle due to COVID. And to think about how he was hospitalized and we were not able to be there with him, I'm thankful to the nursing staff that did allow us to FaceTime and see him, to be able to hear his voice for the last time, still haunts me. And to know that we weren't able to be there and hold his hand bothers me to this day. I pray for those who have gone through the same thing that our family has gone through. I pray for those who have not. And and when I say those who have not, I pray that they don't have that experience. They don't experience that same heartbreak that we have in regards to them. When you talked about how it has exposed some of these inequalities in education, How has the pandemic affected how you approach your job as an educator? 
we have to be very sensitive to the fact that our children, although we want to give them this best top-notch education, if they don't have the devices, if they don't have the resources, then we, we just can't give them all that we would like to give. When they're in the school, that's one thing, but to try to teach some of the students virtually and the schools are having problems with Wi-Fi, as well as the children at home, if they do have Wi-Fi, sometimes they're having problems with their Wi-Fi and their devices. Many of their parents may not be computer literate enough to be able to figure out whatever the problems are and so forth. I think that it has really changed the way that we're going to do, actually the way that education will look from here on out. I think that if we can perfect the way things look and be able to offer those same resources to children, no matter where they live, no matter what color they are, if we're able to level the playing field, I think that this will ultimately change the way education looks. So to know that, or to be on both sides of that fence, to be on the side of where how things look prior to COVID and now to be on this side to see how things look now. It is hard to see our teachers teaching students and to see that they're struggling and you're trying to convey whatever it is that you're trying to convey through these resources that we have like a Zoom and a WebEx and so forth, these different platforms that we're using and not be able to really pull them and work with them one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. I think that, again, it's going to change the way education looks. We're learning to have to adapt in this new world that we're living in. My prayer is that this quickly is resolved and that we can go back to having our babies in the schools. I know that the teachers are missing that. The parents are feeling overwhelmed. So I know that they're missing that as well. The students being able to come to school to receive their education versus being home and having to receive so much support from their parents. I think that all of us welcome going back to that normal, what we called or looked upon as being normal. However, I do feel that we will have that group of parents and children and educators who felt that in some ways this worked and may look into continuing this type of education with their students or their children. Looking to the future more broadly, what do you think the South looks like four years from now? I would love to see four years from now a more accepting South, more accepting of race, gender, socioeconomic status, and so on. I would love to see us embrace each other and focus on those things that we have in common more than those things that we have that we don't have in common. I, I think about our children in schools and how we see children walk into a building and they're accepting of each other no matter what because they haven't learned those different biases. I would love to see four years from now a South that could replicate what we see in our children as far as that love and acceptance. I'm Darius Williams. I'm from Greenville, Mississippi, but I'm a resident of Jackson, Mississippi, and I currently work in cybersecurity. What's one thing you hope happens next year? Next year, I, I, I love to see more young people move back to the South. Um, I think there's a lot of work from home opportunities. 
Um, and there can be some creative economies or, or just like development opportunities in the South as well. And I want to see young people take advantage of it and actually move back home or just realize the benefits of the South and see this as an opportunity to live your life. What's something that you hope never happens again? I hope that there is never a sense of political apathy that we've known or we've seen in the past, especially amongst the, the young folks in the South. I want more situations like Bloomberg coming down and spending you know, a, a ton of money in Mississippi to happen all over the states in the South. And, and for the South to have this national appeal and, and recognition, and not just for our failures or our transgressions. I just kind of want us to keep that same energy um, going forward. Do you think that'll happen? And if so, how do you think the the South will look in four years? I, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm an idealist. Um, I think it's possible. I think in four years, the South could look very different. Um, I think there can be, you know, tech opportunities, opportunities with medical marijuana, you know, that will allow for just growth and economic development in, in the South. And I want to see more people that look like me and, you know, the tech industry and people getting involved with their local city governments. And even, you know, people, you know, serving their state in, in capacities like the National Guard or, or emergency services. I think once we become more invested in, in jobs and, and spaces like that, we can actually see the fruits of our labor in the South. And I think it's very, very much so achievable. Um, but I, I think the future just lies with our young folks. I'm Kyle Buchanan, I'm president at Helen Keller Hospital. Kyle, what's one thing that you hope happens next year? One thing I hope happens in 2021 is a, a return to normalcy. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I hope next year we can find our way back to some sense of, and I'll use this term and I'll, I want to explain it, decency in some sort. I think we have, generally as a society, locally, as well as I think statewide and even nationwide, moved away from having meaningful conversations with people who disagree with us and can find common ground in, in how we do that. Now, that may not happen in 2021, but if, if you want to know that the genuine hope is that we take a big step in that direction. We feel that both from a tactical perspective in how we take care of patients. We find that during this pandemic, often we have lost touch with some of what we know has worked healthcare, and that's leaning on science, being evidence-based in what we do. Sometimes we find ourselves having conversations about what patients may or may not have seen on the news and how that factors into their own healthcare. And, and when what we advise doesn't align politically or socially, that gets in the way. And honestly, in my career, I haven't seen that. That that has, has not been something we've had to deal with. So I would like to take a step back in, into that direction of approaching issues with, with decency, respect, and hearing each other, hearing each other out. Well, especially you know in the way that you just framed it, where people's lives are, are literally at stake because of how people have reacted to politics. And I guess that's always been the case, but we feel it particularly acutely right now. What's something that you hope Never happens again. Wow. Um, I hope we never find ourselves detached from history as, as much as I think maybe we have recently. Um, I've had several conversations. This is a totally different path than healthcare. But I've had several conversations lately with individuals who, as we reckon with 
social justice, uh, racial harmony and disalignment, misalignment in, in that regard. Um, I've had several conversations with people who say, but that didn't exist here. Here specifically being up in the Muscle Shoals area? Yeah. And after some conversation and, and some examples, personal examples from my life and from folks very close to me, I think we get there. So I hope we never get to a place because I, I wrestled with the idea before 2020. I think we did somewhat have an understanding that there are issues and we have to tackle those issues head on. I can't deny them and think they'll go away. I think more recently we've, we've started slipping in the wrong direction with that. And to see next year or four years from now, whenever, for us never to have those types of lapses in memory. And I think that some of that has played out in the region up there, particularly in Florence. There's been a big fight over a Confederate monument that I think factored into the mayor's race there. I mean, very frank conversations about, hey, you know, this does not stand for racism. And historically, you can't detach them. You can't detach what the Confederacy stood for as defined by those who established the Confederacy from the idea that Black people are unequal and less than white people. That's the fundamental basis of which the Confederacy was formed. And just dealing with that head on and moving forward is, is the way to, that I hope we go. Let's talk about you know moving forward. Where do you think the South will be four years from now? That's an interesting question. Um, if you had asked me that a decade ago, I may have a totally different answer. I have a lot of hope for the South, so to speak. And just some background, I mean, we, you know, being born and raised here in this local area, born in the hospital just upstairs from where my office is and going to the University of Alabama and, and kind of starting my career here, I've seen a lot of change that I'm really excited about in our state. And I hope that it continues and not just continues, but accelerates. Um, I think that we have so many opportunities both from a quality of life perspective, and I get you know super sentimental when I talk about my daughter and they're nine and seven and what life looks like for them 20 years from now or four years from now, even to a more uh, practical element of economic development and, and what we can do to make Alabama home for companies and ideas and small businesses and technology that may not have ever considered Alabama because of our history and our reputation. That evolution is occurring in surprising ways. I hope that the next four years are even brighter. I'll be very honest, next Tuesday has a big impact on that. So if we, just like anything else, if the voices of folks who are most engaged and most interested in moving Alabama forward are heard at the ballot box, I think that that, I'm not advocating for one or another, but as many voices there at the ballot box that we can get the better. And I think we'll have the best outcome possible. I'm going to ask you one bonus question just because of your occupation, but from the pandemic perspective, we are kind of heading into what seems to be a spike statewide. What would be your message to somebody who, who's seeing the hospital, you know, day in, day out to our listeners about, you know, how seriously we should be taking this spike? Yeah, I, I wish we could take my computer and this medium to our IDU, which is our infectious disease unit. We house our sickest COVID patients there. We created that unit a few months ago just for COVID patients because we had to find a better place to, to care for them and talk to those nurses about it. I can't tell you that. Not a weekend passes. I don't get out much, <laughs> but uh, when I interact with others, generally in this type of format, I am shocked with how many people who will look me in the eye and I'm, you know, 
in the local paper, usually on Sunday, we give COVID updates and we were not shy about sharing our information. Who will look me in the eye and say, Kyle, you know this isn't real, right? This is going to disappear next Tuesday after the polls close. I said, well, you know, um, tell the daughter of that lady who's upstairs dying. And I, I think she will, I think she will disagree because I just had that conversation with her example after example. And, you know, some other families, one young lady who's our age, whose father, uncle, and grandfather died from COVID. They were all in our ICU together. So when we have those conversations, and again, be becoming detached from reality, I think this kind of plays into a, a bigger story about our culture. We tell people all the time that this is real. One, it's real. And two, it's not going away. Three, there's something we could do about it. And that's just simple. You know, social distancing, wearing masks, all stuff that we know works. We're moving away from that because we're becoming tired of it. And we've got to get back to that or that spike will continue. I think we'll could potentially be worse than what we've seen this summer. That's our show. Special thanks to Kyle Buchanan, Courtney Campbell, Devin Frazier, Whitney Miller Nichols and Darius Williams. And to all of you for listening to wrap up, John, I'm curious, what are your answers to the questions? You know, one thing I hope happens next year is that people don't let up. You know, no matter who wins this election, all of this energy that we've seen from the Women's March and from Black Lives Matter and from all of the coalitions and energy that's been built across the South, you know, that's how change happens. That's what we've seen all season. It doesn't matter who the president is as much as who the people are demanding change. You know, if it's Joe Biden, he's going to need people holding him accountable. And if it's Donald Trump, he's going to need people holding him in check. And so one thing I hope happens is that we keep seeing this energy carry forward into local politics and into shaping our communities. One thing I hope never happens again is, of course, you know, a, a global pandemic, as a lot of our guests have, have echoed. In a lot of ways, it has exposed some some centuries-old issues and problems in the South, and, and maybe that's going to be good going forward. But I think it's also pushed us to a breaking point, and we've seen a lot of tension boil over into, you know, into violence. And I hope that we don't experience something like this again. I hope that we learn from it and uh, are able to prevent future disasters, whether it be a pandemic or even other forms of environmental disasters. But overall, I'm kind of optimistic about the next four years. I think that we are starting to see some of those barriers collapse in the South as people realize, you know, that because of things like this pandemic, that we have more of a shared destiny than maybe we have allowed ourselves to to understand in the past. Uh, we're certainly seeing states like North Carolina pushing for Medicaid expansion. And it seems like states like Alabama and Mississippi are inevitably going to have to follow in that. And so I hope that we have a, a stronger South four years from now and one that's more willing to to embrace all of its identities instead of just kind of presenting this one monolithic face to the to the world. It's really beautiful to see people mobilizing folks to register and get out to vote. But I really hope that, you know, in the next year, as we look to some of these smaller, more local elections, we're actually encouraging folks with just as much energy to get involved in other ways. You know, I've, I covered local government for a long time, and it's really, you know, it's really difficult in a lot of places to get people to run for city council, to run for county commission 
even within cities and within counties, you know, there are boards and commissions that local leaders really have a hard time finding people to fill. And I think that those are great opportunities for people, especially young folks, to step up and get involved in public service. And so, you know, the next Marvel Universe (laughs) blockbuster, whenever we can uh, go back to the movie theater, you know, when people are talking about, you know, signing up people, you know, registering folks to vote in these long lines, I would actually see people, you know, out there talking to people about running for office and handing out candidate registration forms, you know, as much of a headache as it is for reporters to cover these local races that have 25 people running. You know, I think that's really what democracy is all about. And I'd like to see more of that in the future. Something that I hope to never see again is another Confederate emblem on an official state emblem. I know journalists are supposed to be objective, um, (laughs) but, you know, I spent eight years living in Mississippi and I saw how, you know, divisive the state flag is, which is the last flag in the country to bear a confederate battle emblem and you know honestly it really hurt the state economically a lot of places suffer from brain drain or out migration but i really do think that you know some of the 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 symbols that folks in the state held on to were a big part of folks leaving mississippi taking their financial resources taking their creativity and talent out of the state And so Mississippi has an opportunity to vote on a new state flag this year. This is the only endorsement I have ever made in my political career, but but I hope that folks vote to adopt a new flag and and really adopt a banner that that unifies folks rather than, than divides people. And as far as the next four years, I mean, I think the South will look very similar and I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing because going back to some of the lessons that we learned on the show, you know, I really think that it's been Southerners who have pushed every major social change in America. And the former mayor of Jackson, the late Chokwe Lumumba, used to say, you know, to change America, you have to change the South. And so I hope that the very folks that we talk to who are on the ground, who are, you know, doing community organizing, who are building coalitions, who are, you know, getting other people involved. I hope that they keep that same energy. I hope they keep the pressure on. Yeah. Well, now we want to hear from you. We really want to know, now that we've reached the election, how are you feeling? You know, what are you hoping for next year? What are you thinking about? Give it a thought. Tweet us your answers. Again, it's at RLNave and at John Hammontree email us your answers. Maybe next week we'll share them on the show. It's going to be our final episode of this season, but we have some really exciting stuff in store for you next season as well. And we also have a really exciting season of Reckon Radio on the way. This episode was executive produced and co-hosted by me, John Hammontree. And me, R.L. Nave. It was edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like the show and you do want us to be back for season four, please share it with your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And until next week... Thanks for reckoning with us.